0: This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello, and welcome to Bodies of Horror. This is the podcast where I talk about all of our favorite horror films and series, from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, all through the lens of disability. I'm your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. So, what is on the examination table for this episode? Well, as that intro may have suggested, I'm going to be chatting about a series. The first season of Mike Flanagan's latest Netflix offering, The Midnight Club. This is based off of the Christopher Pike book of the same name that was published in 1994. Now, you might be asking, how is there a connection between a group of terminally ill young adults in a hospice setting to folks living with chronic illnesses, disability, uh, impacts of injury, the whole spectrum that that term disability can entail? Well, my hope is that Uh, In my typical messy way, I'll be able to answer that in this episode. But I have to talk about the Mike Flanagan of it all. He is familiar territory around this place. I covered his movie, Hush, uh, some time ago, and I mentioned the film here and there. I really didn't go for that film's depiction of disability and specifically deafness, And it honestly soured me on some of Flanagan's stuff. But I could definitely appreciate the talent, and he's certainly had some offerings that I really, really liked. I've always been a huge fan of Oculus and Ouija: Origin of Evil, and his Netflix series have been incredibly strong. Both haunting installments, and I think my personal favorite of all of his work, Midnight Mass, have been really great vessels to underscore his immense skill at uh, really expansive storytelling. His series especially have leaned into the kind of gothic horror mood he's known for and does exceptionally well. That brings us to The Midnight Club, but before we talk about the series, gotta talk about its background. I want to talk about the origin of the story and how the series found its way to Netflix. Now, like I mentioned at the top, uh, the Pike book was published in 1993. And also, I guess I should just squeeze in a little bit of a disclaimer here. Christopher Pike is a pen name, a pseudonym uh, for, I believe his name is Kevin McFadden. So I am going to be using the name Christopher Pike, even though it's not the author's actual name just because we all know christopher pike um but anyway as i was saying uh the pike book was published in 1993 and this quote comes from an interview that pike did uh, with netflix just last month when the series initially dropped and this is the quote i was contacted by the parents of a young woman who was sick She told me she was in a hospital with a kid's cancer ward and that they would meet at midnight to discuss my books. They called themselves the Midnight Club. She said, could you write a book about us? I said, yeah. I couldn't be talking about my books if I could make up new stories. I was just finishing a book and I finished it real quick so I could start on the book for her. Toward the end, I started to get worried that her voice was getting weaker. I said, do you want to read what I have? And she said, no, I want to read the whole thing. But it was just one of those tragic events that just when I had finished it, she had died the day before. The parents were grateful, but I thought, why didn't I just send the damn book? She would have read 90% of it. I just felt like I should have known how sick she was. So Pike goes on in the same interview to say that after the book was released, uh, kids battling various illnesses would reach out and share how the story resonated with them. And he would hear from parents who were struggling with what their kids were dealing with uh, and often having to face death and mortality at such a young age. He was taken with the maturity and the centeredness that the kids showed in these circumstances while the parents would often be emotional wrecks. So we fast forward a bit to the very beginning of 2019 and Pike gives an interview after not having done any press or anything like that for some time. And there's some buzz around it. People reach out um, to, you know, I guess say, hey, hey, cool interview. We appreciate your work. It's been a minute since we've heard from you. And one of those people was Mike Flanagan. Now, Mike Flanagan has shared that he was a huge Pike fan growing up and had collected all of his books. He reached out to the author after this interview, and they had some back and forth. And Flanagan told him that he'd always wanted to adapt The Midnight Club. And the rest is history. The series was announced in 2020 and filming took place and wrapped in Canada in the fall of 2021. It dropped on Netflix on October 7th of this year and is 10 episodes long with each episode clocking in at just shy of an hour. Now in terms of the process of adapting the book for series... There were a number of changes made, obviously. This happens whenever you're adapting, um, you know, from one kind of media form to the other. Um, But there are, I think, a couple of key ones that are worth pointing out before we really get into discussion. And uh, that's that club members Sherry, Amesh, and Masuki are original characters for the series and don't appear in the book. Also, uh, Mike Flanagan really wanted to adapt other Pike stories to use as foundations for the stories that the club members told. A pretty logical approach, I have to say, uh, to not only add some meat to the bones to make this a series... Uh, But I think a really nice way to steep us in the world of Christopher Pike. So I really can't imagine that there was a bunch of hemming and hawing, uh, if any, on Netflix's side when all this was going down uh, in terms of the planning and getting the series up and going. Uh, Mike seems to have kind of carte blanche in their partnership and Netflix is completely hitched to Flanagan and the flaniverse is thriving. Plus you have the Fear Street movies, another beloved horror YA property um, that was adapted and those films were released in the summer of 2021. And I think they did pretty well for Netflix. So, all right. I think it's now time to dig in to the Midnight Club. I struggled with how I wanted to approach this. If I wanted to break it down episode by episode or what. Um, Because again, we're talking about kind of 10 hours of content. But I think for me, I think it made the most sense to focus on the characters, the members of the Midnight Club. So I'll give just a general overview here in a second of the plot, and then we'll go by. We'll go through our uh, club members one by one. I'm going to Stanford in the fall. You need to celebrate it. Break a few rules, I think. Just like once in your life. Are the odds in my favor? It's not quite that simple. Can you say the real name again, please? Papillary thyroid carcinoma, thyroid cancer. Dr. Georgina Stanton, welcome to Brightcliff. Every living day here is a win. How long have you all been here? Uh, four months for me. Five. Three. Three. Sixty-three days, seventeen hours, and eleven minutes. You don't know the minutes. I'm, I'm going to die. All of us here dying. This is a hospice. My parents told me this was a boarding school. What's in the basement? I dare you. No, he doesn't. It takes a lot to scare me. No, wait, don't. Don't. Don't actually go down there. What is this? It's kind of a club. You guys sneak into the library every night and make ghosts, tell stories. Make ghosts sounds better. official night in the midnight club there's so many stories about this place stories about people who thought they were going to die but did it we do not get to change the outcome. i don't care what it costs there's a way to save us, i burn the world down. You need to stop. And don't put yourself and all of us in real danger. To those before, to those after, to us now, and to those beyond. Mwanka is a high school student and close to turning 18. After passing out at a party, it is discovered she has thyroid cancer. She undergoes treatment, but it isn't successful, and the cancer spreads to her lungs. She and her foster father, Tim, are told that her condition is terminal. While researching her cancer, she reads about Julia Jane, a girl roughly her age from the 60s with the same diagnosis, that was living in Brightcliff, a hospice home for terminally ill young adults, and had been cured of her cancer. Brightcliff still happens to be up and running, and under the leadership of Dr. Stanton, and Alonka checks herself in with the hopes for a similar outcome. She meets the other patients at Brightcliff: Kevin, Spence, Nasuki, Sherry. Amesh, Sandra, and Alonka's roommate, Anya, and discovers that they meet in Brightcliff's library every night at midnight to take turns telling each other scary stories or making ghosts. They call themselves the Midnight Club, and Alonka is allowed to become a member after telling the mysterious story of Julia Jane as kind of her primer. As we learn more about the patients through their own stories and we see the relationships deepen, we also begin to unravel the mysterious history of Brightcliffe and the surrounding land, as well as the cult that had lived there before it became a hospice. So that's a little bit of a general overview of the plot. Now, I'm going to be saying the word hospice in this episode, at least 15 times. So, what is it? Well, hospice is end-of-life care for patients with terminal illnesses that are not receiving treatments or therapies meant to slow or cure the disease. And this is either because the treatments they've been receiving haven't been effective or because they just chose to stop those treatments. It focuses on symptom management and Quality of life. So, think more along the lines of palliative care. So, let's talk about our club members. And I want to start out with Sherry. Sherry is really interesting to me and is really the one club member that we don't get a story from. When she's asked to share a story at a midnight club meeting, she refuses. And she says that she is in the final stages of editing it. There are two things that we know for certain though. Obviously, one is that Sherry is terminally ill. But I don't think that we are given the exact diagnosis. The other thing we know for sure is that Sherry comes from a rich family. It is mentioned by Spence, if I'm recalling correctly, has been... Um, a uh, few days since I've kind of went through the series, so there may be a a detail I'm a little rusty on. So please be gracious. Uh, but if I'm recalling correctly, it was that she showed up in a Bentley with a couple of moving trucks when she moved to Brightcliff. She gets really expensive gifts from her parents, and we never meet the parents on the regular family days at Brickcliff. She says that her mom is a famous actor and her dad is a director, but we often know that Sherry isn't truthful. Sherry may tell a number of lies, but she's also incredibly thoughtful and kind. She gives Alonka an expensive and exclusive wig because Alonka had said something about how she had loved her hair. On Amesh's death day, she gives him a not-yet-released PlayStation because he loves video games and talked about how he was disappointed he wouldn't live to see it released and be able to play it. It isn't just that she is doing this to flex her wealth, though. These are meaningful gifts, and it shows that she listens to people and that she, she really cares. Her kindness is also on display in her support and relationship with Spence. She comes with him when he goes to confront his mom. And in, I think a previous episode, she reveals, and I'm, I'm kind of putting reveal in kind of quotes there. Um, because again, it's kind of hard to really determine, uh, the truth behind what Sherry says, but I, I think this is coming from a a place of truth, is that she is, like Spence, gay, and although their coming out to their families went very differently, both hold a lot of pain from that experience. Uh, I'll talk more about Spence's experience when I talk about Spence next, but, uh, you know, Sherry talks about how when she came out to her parents, they didn't care. Because she wasn't enough to care about. Um, It's a really sad, I think, kind of underscore to, I think, a sense of abandonment and neglect that she feels from her family. Even though she's being, you know, sent these gifts and all of that, you know, she was more than likely raised in a home that was operated by, um, you know, kind of home takers and nannies and all of that. So, um, you know, she doesn't really have that relationship. The gifts are just there as, you know, a stand-in for them and doesn't necessarily always do the job. But I think because Sherry hides behind a lot of these lies that she tells she feels disconnected in a way from the group as a whole. And I think it's just emphasized by the fact that we as a viewer don't get butt into her world either. I'm hopeful that if there is a second season, that we'll get a lot more of her. Because again, I really thought that she was an interesting character. And, um, you know, again, just a really supportive and vital person within the club and it would be nice to see her story kind of come through a bit I don't know if there's anything necessarily mysterious about her I was I don't know when I was doing some research I fell down a couple of rabbit holes that didn't prove necessarily fruitful but was talking about like you know predictions for a second season if there is one and it was kind of going through a because again we don't really know who Sherry is um you know is there going to be some kind of reveal about her identity um all of that and and I don't know if it's going to go that route but again I would just like to see more of her so that leads me in Uh, to talking about Spence, because I think it makes sense to talk about him next. Now, unlike the other patients, or most of them that we know, Spence doesn't have cancer. He has AIDS. His father comes to visit every family day, and there seems to be a lot of love between them, but he is estranged from his mom. His mom is very religious and doesn't approve of him being gay, so she has kind of disowned him. This is really really painful for him And he holds out hope That her heart will change And she will join his dad at family day But she just doesn't With The support of Brightcliff's nurse Mark and Sherry Spence goes home to his parents House and confronts his mom We hope that this Confrontation is Kind of a beginning of healing That relationship And we hold on to that hope when towards the end of the season, uh, mom does finally show up at family day uh, and, you know, kind of is starting to take, I think, some uh, initial some initial steps. So I think that that's something that is really positive. I, I think it is a sign of love and support that Spence was really kind of longing for from his mom. I think connected to all of this uh, is his relationship with Sandra. They bought heads because Sandra is very religious and more on that when I get to her. But I feel the experience of working through that with Sandra also helped equip Spence with some insight and strength or courage to really tell his mom his feelings. We discover, as Alonka discovers through the progression of the the series, that Spence has AIDS when he cuts himself uh, during a group activity, I think in like a, uh, a main room. Anya rips her apart when she has an expression of, I guess, pity towards Spence when she learns about the diagnosis. And Anya so perfectly calls out the performative pity they all experience outside of lift, and highlights that Spence not only has to deal with maybe a layer of that, but atrocious stigma on top of it. It puts a in her place a bit, and that is just one example of where the series tackles how awful it is for those of us living with disability and illness experiencing that poor you mentality from others and it can especially sting coming from someone that we think is in the same boat and this gets us to spence's story in the midnight club the eternal enemy and this is based off of pike's 1993 book of the same name in this story we see that uh, Spence is kind of playing Rel, a college student, who starts a relationship with Christopher. Rell invites Christopher over for a little movie night date after he's taped The Terminator from HBO. They go to start the movie and discover that he has taped the evening news from the next day. Which is odd, because... Rel makes a very specific point of saying, "Well, I taped it at like three a.m., and there's no news playing at that time." So the couple have a bit of fun with this, uh, using it to bet on football games at a local bar, and you know, make a good a bit, a good a good bit of cash there. But then Rel sees a report um, about. Christopher's death. Now, there's also a moment where, uh, you know, things kind of switch. They're having fun with, you know, watching these tape segments, figuring out the scores, going to the bar, betting, getting money, and then they're watching the news and they see uh, the story of an accident that happens on campus where. A girl is smashed by a falling air conditioner and Rill intervenes. And it's after that that Christopher kind of puts, uh, you know, wants to put the kibosh on it a bit and say, you know, maybe we should just let it go and not, not do this anymore. And uh, they see the news uh, kind of broadcast from the next day where they're talking about the accident and how Rell had saved the girl and they see this uh, person in a in a hoodie and, you know, Rell says that he's seen him and it's all very kind of mysterious. But, um, so... Christopher is like, you know, let's just not worry about it. We've made some money. We've had a good time. Let's just kind of chill and have, you know, let's not worry about this. So, of course, Rel can't help himself. And Christopher goes uh, to visit family. and, And Rel sees a report about Christopher's death. And he obviously wants to stop it. Rel's rescue mission is thwarted when he meets a cyborg version of Christopher from the future, which is the figure that he had seen around. Um, Cyborg Chris tells Rel that he, Rel, is a cyborg too, one that he had designed in a pursuit to rid the world of human emotions of sadness and fear. It turns out that Rel had traveled to the past to kill Christopher, but his memories were lost. Christopher tells Rel that Rel is defective or a failure because he continues to feel fear. Rel is killed by Cyborg Chris, but um, uh, Rel leaves a recorded message for pre-Cyborg Chris Telling him that he wasn't defective at all. Um, and that feeling those emotions is not a failure. It's not a sign of defect. So, Spence's story serves the purpose that I think all the stories do. in helping the club members put voice to really difficult or complex feelings... That they have as part of their shared and unique experiences. Fear and sadness are all part of their stories to various degrees because they're dying. Uh, The use of the term defective is a powerful one. But I think it also speaks to something that every club member has experienced. And honestly, something I think all of us with disabilities can relate to. That message that we... And our bodies are defective. This obviously is something that uh, Spence is using to communicate to Sandra. Again, speaking out against her and what he feels are her bigoted beliefs against him as a gay man. And, you know, saying, I am not defective. Now this comes after she kind of gives her story. They both do a back and forth. It's actually very touching, but this is kind of his offering to her. And I think it's a really poignant thing. So um, yeah, I really like the way that the story um, was framed for Spence, because again, I think it really honed in on how these stories were used to emphasize both kind of a shared experience that the members of the club have and how they can relate to it but also something that was really personal to that unique individual's experience so now i want to talk about a mesh a mesh is one of the new characters added for the series as i mentioned before and we know here's what we know about a mesh he has a a uh, glioblastoma, he loves video games, and he has visitors that come every family day. These visitors don't include his parents, who are in India and wrapped up in the immigration process. Almesh was the new kid prior to Alanka showing up, and throughout the series he develops and deepens a relationship with Nasuki, and they are officially a couple at the season's end even with their groups uh, sitting together at family day, which is very cute. And their relationship is incredibly sweet, and I'll touch on it more when I talk about Natsuki next, but they really form a deep and trusting connection, despite them both having hesitations about getting into the relationship. Not because they aren't really into each other, but I think... Just some of those fears that are there due to their circumstances. So we see Amesh celebrate his death day, marking the one year anniversary of when he was told he had one year to live. Amesh has a bucket list and he's trying to make his way through this said bucket list. And sadly we see that some of his symptoms are progressing uh, around that same time. He's starting to lose some hand-eye coordination and balance, and it's noticed by both Mark and Nasuki. It adds extra heaviness to the situation with his parents, who are obviously desperate to see their son, but can't. And it's apparent that they probably won't be able to. Amesh's centerpiece story that he tells in the club meeting after his death day celebration is even more sci-fi leaning than Spence's. It incorporates elements of Pike's 1990 book, See You Later, and his 1996 book, The Starlight Crystal. Amesh plays Luke, a young man with a love for video games and a crush on a girl, Bucky, That works at the video game store. He gives up the courage to ask her out. But she turns him down rather gently. Because she has just started dating someone else. He's approached by a man named Vincent. A game designer who asks if he would be willing to test his new game. Luke agrees. And Luke also meets Vincent's wife, Kara. There's something familiar about the couple. But Luke can't necessarily place it. So Luke tries playing Vincent's game, which Vincent himself describes as risk on steroids, but he can't seem to beat it. Luke uh, learns that the only way to win this game is to not play at all. The story continues to unravel though. We learn that uh, Vincent and Kara are in fact future versions of Luke and Becky. On a mention to keep Becky's boyfriend from creating software that will cause Earth's demise. Becky is completely erased when her future version kills the younger version and future Vincent is killed by Becky's boyfriend. But young Luke remains alive, with the lesson he learned still in mind about you can't play the game; it's the only way to win. He grows old, but never designs the game. The code that would be the world's destruct uh, that would bring the world's destruction is never created, and he even befriends Becky's boyfriend, and they. Kind of have a a kind of good little relationship there there's some space stuff and aliens or angels in the story but you know that's really the meat and considering that amesh is telling this story on his death day i think this is telling us amesh's feelings about priorities for his time left he's the one trying to knock things off the bucket list and, you know, maybe he's thinking about should he be putting that time to his friends, Nusuki. There's a star-crossed lover's element here, too. Becky is played in the story by Nusuki, and they seem to be pulled apart by their circumstances, uh, both in the story and in real life. But, at least Luke had given it an honest go by asking Becky out on a date, and... Amesh and Nasuki talk about a story after the club members leave and their relationship progresses. And again, I really like uh, Nasuki and Amesh's relationship because they really do confide uh, in each other. They always, uh, you know, kind of stay back together after club meetings or Go off on their own And we see these moments of them Really uh, you know kind of Sharing some difficult things with each other And it's really It's a really cool aspect To the story and also kind of Heartbreaking when uh, you know Of course you understand that They're in the circumstances that they That they're in they're dealing with Mortality and death And um, You know how how do you form those relationships and, and what does that mean? So I really like the relationship. I love Amesh as a character and um, not one. I, 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 I obviously would love to have him back for season two, but I think, you know, and Mike Flanagan had talked about this when people asked about plans for season two, because they're like, you know, if you're dealing with uh, a group of characters that are terminally ill, well, you know, you can't you can't have the same cast uh, continue continuing to come back all the time. And I think that this is, um, you know, kind of speaks to that. That I I I don't know if when we would rejoin them, if Amesh would still be around, unfortunately, but. Um, I really like him. Uh, he has some really good one-liners and, uh, I thought his story was really interesting too. I'm, I'm glad that we got something that was really, uh, you know, kind of bringing in some of the sci-fi stories of Pike's, uh, kind of library. So, yeah, and and I think now that can take us into Nasuki and she tells us the first story, that we see of the group although it really isn't her centerpiece story it's a boy um, played in the story by kevin of the group is walking down a deserted street and sees and is pursued by a ghostly figure that is portrayed by nusuki this isn't only i think a great way to introduce us to the mechanisms of the group meetings and how these stories are shared and the flavor of the stories themselves but I do think it is important um that it's Nasuki telling the story and this wasn't something that clicked until I was doing kind of my post viewing research and came across a couple of pieces pointing out that Nasuki seeing herself as monstrous is something that plays through much of the season in kind of interesting ways and I'll touch more on that In a second. But um, in terms of Nasuki, I don't think that we learn what form of cancer she has. She has family that comes and visits, and we see her kind of cut herself off from the group. She goes days at a time without leaving her room, and Amash does his absolute best to draw her out, and she reveals that Dr. Stanton has given her a diagnosis of depression. We get this information before we learn Nasuki's story, uh, which she shares to give the club members, I think, more of her background. So her and Anya, in particular, use their stories, I think, to tell the story of them. And kind of, I think, their life before they came to Brightcliff, and really before their diagnosis. Nisuki is also, I think, a very kind-hearted person. And I think especially is sensitive to folks feeling alone. There's a patient that we don't really get to spend much time with uh, named Tristan. And... Nasuki sets outside the recovery room and reads a story to her, which we find out is the story that she shares with the club to Tristan through an intercom. And it's very sweet. And you just, you get that sense that she, she wants to be there for people and I think it's, you know, a challenge for her with depression and, you know, for those of us who deal with that, the the need to kind of ghost, your, you know, ghost people around you. Um, again, going back to that kind of showing herself as a ghost in that first initial story and we see that image pop up. A couple of times, and yeah, um, I really, I really liked Nasuki. And then we get to her story, and ooh, it is, uh, it is a, a doozy, and it's based off of the 1993 Pike uh, book, Road to Nowhere. Musuki in the story plays Teresa, a girl running away from home. She hops in her car and drives. She picks up two hitchhikers, Freedom Jack and Poppy corn. And things are okay at first. The couple seem to be a bit at odds at time, with um, Freedom Jack being a little bit more abrasive and aggressive, especially as time goes on. And Poppycorn constantly kind of checking in with Teresa, uh, reassuring her in the wake of some of Jack's outbursts and um, trying to make sure that she's just okay. Now, like I said, we're kind of teased the story when uh, Nasuki is outside the recovery uh, room reading to Tristan before she passes. Um, but anyway, back to the story. So the group seem to be traveling in never ending loop and they need to make some stops for gas. And Jack may have killed a gas station attendant when he goes in, but Poppycorn says that he didn't do anything more than just rip off the booze. He wouldn't kill anyone. She stays with her, and there's this pervasive smell. Um that Teresa seems to keep mentioning but uh, neither Poppycorn or Freedom Jack say anything and you know Poppycorn stays with her uh, in the car and they get out and get some fresh air even though um, you know Freedom Jack when he's going into the gas stations you know tells them to stay in the car not to turn off uh, the ignition. Teresa gets really tired and wants to stop, but Jack tells her to keep going, and there's an increasing kind of green fog or mist in the sky, and a hooded figure that they see walking on the side of the road. And we then get to our first reveal of the story, that... Teresa's never-ending trip never left her garage. Teresa had started the car and left the motor running with garage doors closed. Uh, And uh, obviously uh, uh, to take her own life. And she's able to uh, get out at the last moment and open the garage doors. And is able to live. And we understand that this is Nasuki sharing her past experience. And it's really heartbreaking. But the hits kind of keep coming when Nasuki shares even more with mesh. In the real story, in Nasuki's story, uh, she hadn't been able to open the garage door. She was found by her mom, and paramedics were called in the last moments. And it was in subsequent, I think, medical care following that, that the cancer was discovered. And it's just a really, I think, interesting, um, kind of enlightening uh, point to Natsuki and her kind of mental health issues, and how she, you know, continues to go through day by day, and you know, do the best that she can, and continues to be there for the other club members. I really like her, and I could see her uh, coming back in a season two, uh, and and I think that would be be great. Um, I think another thing that I also noticed about Nisuki, and this goes back to not wanting people to feel alone, and I'll talk a little bit about this with Sandra, but, um, you know, she also reassures Sandra, um, when they're getting ready to do this ritual. So part of what kind of the general plot as well, and I'll talk about it next with Anya, but there is a ritual that they perform as they're discovering the secret of the Paragon cult that lived on the grounds before. They find this book that details this ritual that uh, Alonga has kind of traced to Julia Jane and her being healed of her cancer. And so they want to do it. Um, Sandra doesn't want to. And it is uh, Masuki that goes to her and I think is incredibly sweet and says, look, I know this is hard. I know this isn't something that you want to do and it's against your faith. But this is about being, you know, part of this group. And, um, you know, it would be great if you could and, and you know, if you want us to pray with you you know you just have to be there to be kind of a witness so again I think Nisuki is really wanting to be a glue to the group as much as she can so now I want to talk about Anya. Anya I think is a character that is kind of a, a favorite of a lot of people who have seen the show and She's a very dynamic and I think a true beating heart of the group. And she is Alonka's roommate. We don't really know much about her. Um, You know, she's a bit uh, prickly and standoffish, especially to Alonka when Alonka first gets there. And... But, you know, of course, like everyone else, I think she has a really kind uh, heart. And she does share with us, I think, um, a lot of, I think, some difficult things. And, like I mentioned before, her kind of centerpiece story really uh, gives her history. And I think it is so imperative in helping us understand her kind of her personality. And another interesting thing about this character is that we do get an episode um called Anya that takes place after they have uh, attempted this ritual. So back to the ritual just for a second. So the group tries to do this ritual because Anya Has been getting sick. And they think that Anya uh, can be healed by this. So they break her out of the recovery room and she goes down into the basement where they're doing this ritual and it doesn't work. She goes into a coma. And then we get an episode that we learn is basically kind of a a dream of hers while she's in this coma. But first, I want to talk about kind of her center her centerpiece story and her background. So her her main centerpiece story and the one that tells us kind of her you know, her history is called the two Danas and in it, she plays the character of Dana and she is a dancer, a ballerina and she's fed up. She, she loves dancing, but she also wants to go and, you know, do normal kid things because, you know, being a dancer is a very kind of disciplined in hard pursuit. And so she's she's feeling a little boxed in. She she she's feeling like she's not able to experience all that there is and she's young and she wants to go out and spend time with friends and party and all of that. So she makes a deal with the devil to essentially split herself into so that one Dana Dana Prime can be the, you know, good Dana. Can do ballet and be kind of the diligent and hardworking uh, Dana that her family knows and loves. And then there's bad Dana. Dana that's able to go out and party and have a good time. Now, the devil specifies that you will be able to not just have these different experiences, but you guys will experience them together. So, you know, while uh, Dana 2 is out partying, Dana Prime is feeling it. Uh, There's a really funny moment in the story where, uh, you know, Dana 2 is having sex for the first time, and uh, Dana Prime is on the couch with her her parents watching a movie and she has to you know kind of make an awkward uh move away from the couch and kind of leave the room so of course this isn't uh going to end well and the partying continues it wrecks havoc on dana prime uh, being able to dance and she wants to slow things down Uh, But Dana 2 can't. And they are kind of on a path to destroy themselves. And so again, because they can kind of feel and experience what each other are going through. You know, there's um, kind of self-mutilation to harm each other. There's all sorts of things. And it ends... um, You... You just kind of see them ripping each other apart. You also get a quick shot of um, uh, kind of Dana Prime, you know, dancing, and, you know, Dana 2 is intoxicated and she falls and gets injured. And I'm going to come back to that because Anya is an amputee. And, again, we don't necessarily get the full-fledged story, but we get enough. Um, And I'll kind of fill in some blanks in a second. So that's really kind of the two Danas. Um, And then after uh, Anya starts to get sick, we begin to learn a little bit more. Some of those blanks are filled in for us. And that is, so it's, you know, kind of a... An autobiographical story that she's telling that she was, you know, she had come to dance in the states and with her family and started partying. And she, um, you know, uh, her parents went to find her one night when she was out. They both passed. And she continued uh, kind of down a path of harder drugs after that until she uh, was diagnosed with cancer. Um, Again, I don't think we know exactly what kind, but she's in a wheelchair. Um, So, yeah. Um, And that's kind of what we know. There's also her friend, Rhett. So, again, we kind of... What's interesting about her story is that we do get um, kind of these little flickers of specific um, kind of real life parallels and one is her friend Rhett. So someone that she had been dating when she started getting into, you know, partying and drugs and, you know, it wrecked their relationship as well. So... That's kind of the history of Anya. Now, one thing I will say that kind of stood out to me in terms of, you know, just her main story that I wanted to comment on is the parents. So she mentions that her parents passed um, in a car wreck when they were out looking for her. I find this, I find this interesting and I'm kind of applying this to a disability lens here. So one thing that, especially kids with chronic illnesses and disabilities and that are living with the impacts of injuries, we are never really uh given a break from the reminder that we are a burden to our parents. Lots of other people too, but mainly our parents or our guardians. And, you know, is holding this guilt because her parents, uh, you know, passed away when they were looking for her. And she feels responsible for their death. And I think that that's something that, as... A person with a disability, you know, our parents, you know, lots of times you'll hear people say, well, yeah, well, your your mom killed herself, um, you know, to to give you this life. And because she had to sacrifice so much more um, for you because, you know, you needed you needed extra kinds of care, Um, you know, really talking about the sacrifices. That parents make and I don't want to diminish that I'm not saying that that isn't true and accurate and something that we we need to talk about but I often feel that in a lot of stories it becomes framed as again painting folks with uh, disabilities and again this is physical disabilities can be mental health issues too Um, I've talked about how those all fit under that kind of umbrella Um, you know, we're just burdens and we're, you know, our parents, our families, others always have to sacrifice for us. And it just kind of feeds into this notion that we are kind of drains on society and on resources. So I don't know, there was something about that storyline that kind of hit me that way. But we then get kind of another episode dedicated to Anya. So after the ritual, we uh, we cut to an episode where it's Anya out of Brightcliff. She's working at a grocery store. She's... Uh, just kind of living everyday life. She is no longer in a wheelchair. She has her prosthetic. And she's kind of going through day to day. She walks by a dance studio on her way to and from work. And you know has some interest into getting into it again. But she's also living kind of a very sad life. A very, I think, isolated and lonely life. This is commented on by her boss at her job. Um, who's like, you know, maybe, you know, uh, get out there. Uh, You know, are you talking to someone? Are you part of a support group? And she is part of a support group. But I think an important thing with that is that she comments... Um, during, I think, one of the main sessions that we see, you know, no one else talks in these sessions as opposed to me because they're group sessions, which there's a reason for that. But she also talks about, you know, to go further with that idea of kind of this loneliness and isolation is you know, she thought, she talks about how you know, she feels chewed up and sped out as opposed to feeling just completely grateful for you know, no longer uh, being as ill as she was, for being out of Brightcliffe, no longer being terminal. She she just feels chewed up and sped out a lot of times and I think it's commenting on how there's just not a lot of uh supports and uh resources out there for folks that are making any kind of transition it's the same thing like if you go in and you have like a major operation or you have this life-changing event you know you go through cancer treatment all of these things are just life-altering events and we don't really think about all that Kind of takes on a person. Not just physically. But also emotionally. And mentally. And I think it's speaking. A little bit to that. And. So. um, We start to see that she's having. Some pretty horrific visions. Incorporating elements. Of the club stories. That we've heard so far. At that point. And she's also hearing on the radio voices that sound like Kevin and some of the other uh, Midnight Club folks speaking to her. She's also seeing the shadowy figure, which had been kind of following her around as she was getting sick at Brightcliff. And it kind of culminates with a bunch of kind of all of these stories that we've seen from the Midnight Club coming together in kind of one moment. As I think she's either coming or going from work. And she's trying to get into uh, the, studio, the the dance studio that she, she walks by. It's a, it's a very kind of chaotic, but really well done, I think, scene. Where all these stories were kind of coming in on her. And she finds herself in bed, overwhelmed, sobbing. And we hear the voices again on the radio. And this is when it becomes clear to us that Anya is in a coma. And that it is... The members of the club speaking to her through that intercom that we had seen, um, you know, previously in episodes where Masuki was talking to Tristan. Um, so they kind of clue they're all together and they're telling stories, but the story that they're telling now is one to bring her peace so they create a story for her where they all leave right and they all live in the suburbs instead of not being able to re- reconnect with Rhett, someone that she obviously has very kind of deep feelings for we see you know her try to reach out to him and he won't speak to her. Um, they are able to reconnect and they get married. Amesh and Nasuki and Alanka and Kevin and Spence and Sandra and Sherry all live near them. They move into like this little perfect little suburban home. They have kids, and they just all grow old together, and it's beautiful. And that's how the story ends, and that's how Anya's kind of story ends. There, it's kind of her getting that piece. And who's telling this last little bit of the story is Alonka. The other club members have kind of gone. And so it's a really kind of beautiful way for them to wrap up their relationship as roommates as well, because, you know, they, they had it kind of tough at the beginning, but they really became super, super close and important to each other. And so I think it's a really touching way to wrap up Anya's story. It does come back again towards the end. Um, Alonka reads a note that Anya has left them after she's passed, kind of talking about her wishes. There's a statue that she has that, um, you know, one of the things they had talked about is, you know, if one of the members passes, you know, that member, if there's anything on the other side. Should try to send a message to the other members. And, um, we, we see that this actually happens with the statue that Anya had. Uh, the statue that she had that we had seen throughout, uh, the kind of the season was a dancer statue with a broken foot. And this one had a kind of repaired fully kind of restored uh, foot and uh, so kind of the sign from Anya from the other side and next now I want to talk about Sandra so Sandra is a religiously devout patient at Brightcliff and the club often rolls their eyes at Sandra's story contributions Being not a lot more than angel porn which I thought was uh, kind of funny and honestly I feel kind of a a riff on kind of the inspiration porn thing so I got a, a real chuckle out of that one. We don't really know what her diagnosis is until kind of the end of the season And we learned that she had been diagnosed with stomach cancer, I believe, or a condition that caused kind of uncontrolled tumors or growths in the GI tract. Things come to a head between Sandra and the club members early on during a group therapy session after Tristan uh, has passed. And she's trying to get others uh, to kind of, turn to her faith and kind of her beliefs as a means to mourn. This especially gets to um, Spence and you know, I think a lot of this is given his history with how religious fundamentalism has harmed him and his family relationships, cost him friends, and is often an avenue for bigoted beliefs against LGBTQ folks. I think it's, in a lot of ways, Sandra is kind of a stand-in for his mom and her kind of toxic beliefs and the harm that those have caused. So it it really causes a blow-up Uh, between them and it's what ends up uh, kind of bringing her to share her story Um, and her story is called Give Me a Kiss and it's based off the 1988 book uh, by Christopher Pike with that same name and it's a little messy but I think it's a pretty emotional uh, peace offering that she can offer and kind of done in a, an old school detective black and white style and it's kind of a twisty revenge uh, tale where she is playing the character of Alice. She is going in to uh, meet with a detective. There's uh, two uh, students dead, one missing, and she goes through this, uh, convoluted plot of, uh, you know, it was, this had all gotten, uh, out and, uh, someone faked their death. And all of that happens, but the important thing is that at the end, it turns out that Alice herself was responsible she's trying to place the blame on everyone else and deflect from herself but she's the one that had murdered um you know two people had meant to murder three um but one had gotten away and that one is played in the story by spence and it's I think, like I said, it's really her way of, you know, I'm sorry for the way that, you know, perhaps I've treated you, but most importantly, I'm sorry for the hurt that, you know, people that are also claim my faith have caused you. And she has this very important line of, you know, you can't love God and hate love. So I think this is, I think a, a moment of her recognizing kind of the power and, um, you know, the, the impact that her beliefs have had on some and, and how she needs to kind of evaluate that as well. And I, I think it's a good, way for her and Spence to begin, you know, kind of building a little bit more of a relationship. And I think for her to feel a little bit more comfortable putting down some walls um, to other members of the club. But Sandra's story takes a very different turn. So... Towards the end of the season, after the group has tried to perform this ritual, it hasn't worked, um, Anya died, Alonka overhears Dr. Stanton saying that, in fact, someone would be leaving Brightcliff because their prognosis had improved. She's waiting to confirm But it would appear from test results that that would be the case. Alonka is convinced that it's probably her. But she does just straight up ask Stanton. And Stanton says, "Uh, Look, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but fine. I'll tell you that it's not you. And... We then see Stanton, uh, bring Sandra into her office and it's revealed that the person going home is Sandra. That they've been, you know, doing the regular tests and it appears that her condition has improved. And so she, she gets to go home. And this was such a, I, I felt that this was a standout scene for me of the entire season. Um, I, I love both of them in this scene. So Sandra's reaction is very, I think, realistic. And obviously excited to hear this news, but also I think a little bit scared. And she tells Stanton, I don't know how, how to feel about this. Like, I'm obviously happy, but I feel a lot of other things too. It's very complicated. And Stanton says, look, however you're feeling is correct. However you're feeling is right because this, you know, dealing with this kind of health news, just like on the other side of being told that you, you know, you have a terminal illness, this is a new life adjust. And I think it's also worthwhile. And I think it's either mentioned in this scene or maybe when, or maybe in a scene where Stanton is talking to, to someone else. Um, but she mentions, you know, now it's just going to be more testing. Because I think one of the things that's important is that it's not like Sandra is walking out of Brightcliff with a completely clean bill of health. Right? She's still sick. But it's not terminal. Based on these tests. And so she needs to go back and. Kind of start almost from square one really. And figure out like what's going on. And you know is she improving. And continuing to improve in all of this. So. This is all. um, I think. Just so well done in the scene with her and Stanton. Though Their, Their back and forth is amazing. And I love the way that Stanton handles handles it and um i'll talk very little about stanton at the end here but i absolutely just love this scene and it also i think introduces some awkwardness between sandra and the group because stanton leaves it up to her To tell the other members. Of the club. And she does. And you know. How is. The group going to react. When you share that news with them. You know hey. Turns out I'm doing okay right now. Maybe I'm not going to die. So I get to leave. Uh, You know. The past. X amount of months have been great. Um, but I'll, I'll check you guys later. Like, of course, it's all just probably like a ball of just intense emotion for Sandra, And I love how this just really plays out with her. And people are really kind and gracious with her and understanding of that. And she's still a part of the club. And again, I think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that, you know, Yes, she may not be terminal, but her health journey continues. She's not healthy. And I'll circle back probably a, a bit to a finer point on that towards the end. Because I'm also going to be talking about Shasta, um, a.k.a. Julia Jane. So, yeah, that's Sandra. Um So the next person I want to talk about. We're getting towards the end. This is, this is a long episode, y'all. Is Kevin. And Kevin is, I think, the first person that Alonka meets when she gets to uh, Brightcliff. He takes her in. Uh, Anya is supposed to, I think, give her a tour. But she uh, doesn't show up. So uh, Kevin kind of fills in. And they kind of form a connection. Alonka has a crush on him. But she learns that he has a girlfriend. And his family comes to visit on family day. But his mom is very... I think a little uh, overbearing. And is really... Fixated on, you know, her family's life, her son's life, kind of fitting into a specific narrative. You know, she talks about how Kevin, he was uh, a runner, and, you know, now she's kind of forcing his little brother to kind of follow in his footsteps, even though that doesn't seem to be what he, he wants to do but that seems to kind of be the environment that he's grown up in. And this is, I think, reflected in his story. And his story, along with Alonka's and a little bit of Anya's, are really told over a couple of episodes in, in pretty good chunks. But he tells the story of... The Wicked Heart. Which is based on the Pike book by the same name published in 1993. In it, Kevin plays the character of Dusty. And he is a teenage serial killer. And he particularly seems to target um, girls in his class, um, his peers but all girls and he will sneak into their rooms and attack them with a hammer um or kind of like stalk them. He meets a new girl named Sheila and she is friends with his most recent victim and she's hot on the case. She wants to know what happened to her friend. And begins kind of, uh, you know, really trying to solve the case. And he is going to pursue her, um, and kill her, make her the next victim. But she's kind of able to, uh, to get him to kind of fight against his impulses. Because throughout the story, he is really driven by kind of the I guess, possession of a demon that's been passed down from his grandfather to his mom. Kind of symbolizing I think um, not just the kind of toxic uh, familial traits that we're seeing kind of play out when they come and visit during family day uh, in Kevin's real life, but um, I think specifically in the story, he mentions that his mom has, you know, kind of a, an Alzheimer's or dementia type um, illness. So, you know, kind of putting that all into the pot as well. But Sheila gets him to kind of fight against it and he is taken down. So... That is kind of Kevin's story. But what I really wanted to focus on with Kevin is a little bit of what happens kind of in subplots with him. I really don't find necessarily his uh, relationship with Omaka all that interesting. Um, Just... I feel like they both just have very different focuses throughout so much of the season that you're not really kind of concentrated on their relationship. They do have like a little bit of chemistry, I guess, but you know, he's with someone and she's really trying to figure out like the stuff behind the Paragon cults and Julia Jane and has been meeting, um, you know, an MLM, uh, guru, in the woods uh, in her free time. So, but uh, with Kevin, he, like I mentioned, he has a girlfriend uh, named Catherine, and she comes with uh, the family on family day. And there's, uh, I think uh, early on in the season, or maybe towards the uh, halfway point, he goes to prom. With her, and it's a really interesting thing because he talks about how he doesn't want to do it. You know, he's not really feeling well, he feels really self conscious, he doesn't want to go and get all the pity looks in the you know, oh, you're so strong, oh, I'm so sorry you're going through this. Um, you know, kind of these really empty platitudes from folks. Um, and it's just being awkward, even if stuff is really you know, well-intended and and not just empty platitudes. It's just awkward. And that's not the situation that he wants to be in. And, you know, he just doesn't really have the ability to, I think, kind of assert himself in that way. And so he goes to prom. uh, I think it's Alonka does his makeup uh, and helps him get ready. And she ends up screaming at his girlfriend towards uh, a later bit of the season. They do end up kind of together at the at the end, but his girlfriend comes. This is after the prom, and you know, Alon- Alonka kind of takes it on herself to be Kevin's mouthpiece to her and says, you know. You're coming here. You want to go on this picnic with him when you haven't even thought about if he wants to do this, that it's uncomfortable for him to walk that far. Um, you know, he doesn't feel good, but you're doing this for yourself because you want to feel good about your situation. And, um, you know, you guys went to prom, but he didn't really want to go. He, you know, had to deal with really awkward conversations He had to dress up, he didn't feel great, you know, he was prom king, but it was all, you know, it was all done out of a, you know, kind of a -a make-a-wish type of place, and he's just not happy. And how dare you put him through this? It's an awful moment, incredibly well acted by, by both folks. But it's a really awful moment for Alonka because it's not her place to speak for Kevin. And Kevin comes in and sees this and stops her. But, you know, whether or not it was true, Kevin should have been the person, uh, kind of saying it if it was. He should be the one having that conversation with Catherine. I think that's also part of what the story is talking about that he shares is his inability to kind of fight against these other influences, be it his family, etc. You know, when people's telling him to do X, he just wants to do it. He really does need to kind of take a page from Spence's book and, you know, find that strength to stand up for himself. And say kind of what's on his mind. Um, because I think it does a lot less damage that way. He does end up breaking up with Catherine. Probably that day. But it's you know. Alaka shouldn't have done it. And Kevin should have been the person. To not let it get to that point. If that was the case. I'm not saying that, hey, we all do stuff like that from time to time. But I think it was a good insight for him to see that by not doing this, you're you're causing pain for other people. You're putting them in difficult positions too. Catherine was, I think, really well-meaning. I think she really cared for Kevin. I don't think she wanted to put him through pain. I don't think she wanted him to not have a good time at prom. I just... You know, when you're a teenager, you may not necessarily be thinking about all of the nuances and intricacies of how other people in situations may react to a moment. And so it was also great to see Kevin kind of start to stand up for himself in, in that scene by yelling at Alonka and telling her to back off. But it is a nice moment I think when all of the club members are able to uh, kind of empathize with Kevin and his experience at prom and you know those pity looks and the oh, you're so strong moments. I And they just kind of groan and it's perfect. It's something that living with A disability, you get that too. Um, I remember in high school, I spent a chunk of my senior year in the hospital and we had homecoming, which is the, I guess, school dance that we would have a court for. And I got to be on the homecoming court. And I knew that I was only voted onto the court out of, you know, kind of a pity vote. And so I, you know, had to walk out. I think I had my walker at the time because I was just out of surgery when that would have happened. And yeah, I remember just kind of being like, well, seeing friends is one thing. And I'm excited about that. But I'm not excited for people to just kind of look at me and be like, we're just so glad that you came out tonight and like, well, cool, I'm in pain and I would like to go home take some meds and, you know, watch TV for a bit and maybe catch up on some homework as opposed to be here and have to talk about uncomfortable things. So, yeah, I very relatable moments, and I think one of the things that I really love about the series so far, again, I'm just really hoping it gets a season two, um, is that it does allow these moments to kind of shine through. And this brings me to the final character, and that is Alonka. Again, she's kind of our uh, main character. Um, although I, you know, it's one of those, I think, shared storytelling type things where even though she's kind of the, the anchor, you really do get lots of time with other characters. And I would say that Alonka is not necessarily my favorite character. I just feel like she doesn't do a whole lot. I feel that she's kind of self-serving in a lot of ways. She goes to Brightcliffe because she thinks she can kind of find a secret to, to be healed of her disease. And that's not a bad thing at all. I'm not saying that that's necessarily selfish, but I think a lot of the choices that she makes in the pursuit to find out more about the cult and the rituals that were behind Julia Jane uh, becoming healed do kind of read as selfish and you know just like people kind of call out Sandra for trying to be prescriptive of her faith and you know having other people kind of adhere to that belief system I think that Alanka sometimes does the same I think we start to see a little bit of a change though in her towards the end and I'm, you know, again, would be really encouraged to kind of see how that would uh, develop if that's a path that they go for a season two. But, you know, I kind of gave her background in the intro. She is the first kind of character that we meet. She's diagnosed with thyroid cancer. She's in the hospital. She's diagnosed as terminal and she comes to Brightcliff. She... Is part of the foster system. And she talks about how. I think. Her forming these relationships. With other folks. At Brightcliff Is kind of filling in a sense. Of. I don't want to say neglect. Because she has a really great relationship. With her foster dad. And I think she had a great relationship with her mom. Her foster mom, uh, who we learn has passed. But, um, you know, I think that just feeling like, do I really belong somewhere? And I think this is a place that she feels like she belongs. I think it also, in a lot of ways, Speaks to why she would be the person that's like, all right, well, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to go to this place where this person who had my diagnosis was healed because this is what I want. She's very smart. She has lots of plans for her future. She's going to Stanford, all of this stuff. And she's very, I think, resourceful in that way and, and independent as well. Um, despite kind of her close relationship with her foster dad. Now, the kind of a subplot that I haven't really hit on much is kind of the relationship that she begins to form with Shasta. So Shasta is someone that she discovers when she's out kind of walking around the grounds of Brightcliff. She sees this woman, uh and I think it's like down by this stream, and she introduces herself as kind of a, uh, you know, all natural, um, kind of health and wellness supplement, um, kind of business. Uh, she's kind of the head of that, and their I guess headquarters are. Uh, Just off uh, the property. So they meet. um, And we learn that Shasta has a little bit more knowledge. About Brightcliffe than what she may have let on. And that's because we discover that she is in fact Julia Jane. To me this was really obvious. um, For a few different reasons. But... Um, you know, Alonka forms this friendship with her and is kind of guiding her, um, you know, about where to find more information about the cult in the library and kind of giving her tips and encouragement to continue to do the ritual. All of this stuff. So, um... Shasta is an interesting character and I think also in a lot of ways mirrors uh, Julia Jane in that, you know, this pursuit for health. Because we find out that um, while Julia Jane has been healed during her time at Brightcliff, she is sick once again and is actually looking, uh, you know, for someone to uh, do the... Ritual the five sisters again so that she can be healed. When Alanka talks to Stanton about Shasta, Stanton says, you know, they are near the land here. Um, You know, we try to play nice. They try to cross our boundaries and that's not cool. Shasta ends up getting into the school to perform the ritual and because uh, Alonka, I think, is also convinced that you know having Shasta and her crew as part of this will help, and you know make it go right this time. It almost has completely disastrous results with everyone dying. Um, but thankfully, um, Stanton is able to intervene in, uh, you know, the last minute before anyone is killed. We do see, you know, the paramedics come and take everyone out, um, but, uh, no casualties that we are aware of from the ritual. So, I suppose I should talk For a second. About Dr. Stanton. Uh, I think especially because. The last shot of. uh, The season. Is of Stanton. um, Taking off a wig. And having this symbol. Tattooed. On the back of her neck. Um, The symbol of this. Cult. The Paragon cult. So. Dr. Stanton, like I said, is the uh, kind of runner of Rightcliffe. I believe a psychiatrist by trade and, uh, you know, oversees all of the group therapy sessions. And, you know, just does all of the day-to-day operations and kind of oversees everything. Played phenomenally by Heather Lane camp does a really nice job at walking a great line of being really kind of having like this real sense of authority but also being very kind and gentle and, you know, did nothing but break down facts to Alanka uh, each and every time. Uh, especially when Alonka was trying to... Uh, you know, get information from Staten over who was the person who would be going home, she very, I think, correctly said, look, I don't even have all of the information yet and I'm not going to say anything until I completely know all, like, this is all verified for me. And also, it shouldn't be your place to say anything. This is my place. I will be the one to say it to whomever is going to leave. I will tell you that it isn't you. But that's it. And it's got to in there. The rest needs to come to me. And you know be handled by me. And I think that's right. Um, you know I think the way that she handled it with Sandra is perfect. So yeah. Um, and I think really does a great job at building that trust with the the patients at Brightcliff. I think ending it on the cliffhanger of "Oh, well, what? Who is Stanton? What's her story now?" Um, is so wild, and I will be upset if we don't get any kind of resolution. To that, like, is she connected uh, to the cult? Is she one of the leaders? Like, long lost daughters? Is she like what? What, what is the connection? There's got to be something there. Um, so, I'm really intrigued. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was a really great performance by by Heather Lane camp So. Um, and again, really does a nice job at kind of delivering some real moments of authority and I need to, you know, run this place with a real, I think, compassionate and understanding tone. There's a scene where it's, um, uh, After what's happened to Anya Has happened I want to say it's after she's died Like right after Maybe Um Or maybe it's Yeah it would be right after she's died And they're meeting In the club Uh In the library The club is meeting in the library And she Comes into the meeting and they are all surprised to see her thinking that she has no idea. And she's like, uh, I'm not ridiculous. Of course. I know that a bunch of patients leave their rooms at midnight. Like, who am I? <laughs> Hello? Um, and I think it's great. I 100% think you guys can do this. Why do you think that there's... You know, always fresh wood for the fireplace down here. That's fine. But you're pushing boundaries that I have set up around this place and I don't care for it. So, you know, stay out of the basement, do this, and we'll see if I continue to let you guys... Have the privilege of being able to meet in here. And me not locking doors. Because that's something that she's really firm about. She doesn't want to lock doors. She wants people to have freedom. In brightcliff But you know. She's also like you haven't earned my trust. Um, I set up rules. And if you're not going to obey them. Don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. Um, just really interesting. And again. I really want that story to continue. Because she is great um yeah this has been really long so I think that's pretty much it there are a couple of I think uh, both major and minor things that I want to mention that didn't really fit well I think within kind of like the character breakdowns the first one is about Spence so like I mentioned in Talking about Spence You know his story In particular is really About kind of acceptance And um, And I think forgiveness As well But there's a couple of times that he mentions You know Loss of community And you know Not Not being able to be around, I think, other members of the LGBTQ community. Be around other, um, you know, gay men. And, you know, have that sense of community and advocacy and activism. um, Understand, you know, the possibilities of all of that. It's important to note that this story is taking place in the nineties, which is a different time um, in terms of a lot of the political, social, political, um, I think, temperature around um, the LGBTQ community. But you know, we still had and still do have a long ways to go in terms of prejudice and. Discrimination and again, the stigmatization, particularly of gay men around HIV and AIDS. And so there's a scene, I think it's either right before or right after he goes, and I think it's right after he confronts his mom, but before she ends up coming to Family Day towards the end, where Mark takes him to meet. you know, other members of the LGBTQ community that are, I think, participating in, in making signs for, I think, a demonstration uh, to raise awareness around HIV and AIDS. Again, this is taking place in the 90s, and I think the activism around that obviously looked very specific to that time. But I think it's, again, about finding community and finding hope. In that community for Spence and Mark is A big piece of that Um we don't get a lot of background For Mark but I think You know he is You know A super supportive uh Kind of staff member for For everyone but you know Really has I think Um been there For Spence to help him Not feel I think Uh I think so isolated in his experience. You also get a moment with him and Mark uh, after he has cut himself where Mark is stitching him up, you know, and he makes a point to say, Hey, I'm wearing gloves, not, not to protect me, but to protect you from getting infected. And we also do see that Mark discovers that, um, you know, he has a new lesion, on his arm that uh Spence has a new lesion on his arm. So unfortunately we're seeing the progression of symptoms there. But yeah, I mean it's an interesting storyline because again in our time in 2022 the management um of those symptoms associated with AIDS and HIV and um uh, the life expectancy those look different now but there's obviously still you know still not a cure still lots um uh of work to be done there and i don't know i i i just wanted to make sure that i i kind of uh spoke to kind of those elements of spence's story as well another thing that i didn't talk about with Anya but the actor who plays Anya Ruth Cobb is a person with a disability she is an amputee she in uh I think an interview with Netflix I had read with her she shared a little bit about her story she uh had an injury at a young age and uh, it kind of messed up her foot and as she got older, it just caused more and more issues and I think when she turned 18, she ended up uh, getting it amputated. And so, I know that in uh, a number of different interviews... Flanagan talked about how it was important for him to cast someone with a disability in the role of Anya, and I'm really thrilled to see it, especially because his track record on that front is pitiful. So, um, and she, along with a lot of uh, you know, Flanagan staples, but her being a new one now, she's gonna be in his upcoming series, Follow the House of Usher. So I'm excited to to see what she has in store next. I thought she was incredible in the series, and um, you know, obviously she would be one that isn't going to come back, uh, if there is a season two. But excited to see her in Follow the House of Usher, but I just wanted to point that out that it's always great when you know we can celebrate an uh, actor with a disability in a role like this. And so uh just really cool to see. And with that I think that's gonna wrap up this episode. This has been a long one, y'all. But again, ten hours of content—that's what—that's what happens. I really liked this uh, the series a ton. It really exceeded a lot of my expectations. I haven't read uh, a lot of Pike books. I read a handful of them, and so I wasn't familiar necessarily with the background of the Midnight club something about it seemed familiar so maybe it was something that i had read back in the day um but um you know it was cool because i i didn't really have those expectations coming in and i hadn't read uh, i think the only story that really stood out to me as being one that i remembered reading was the road to nowhere in terms of kind of the other stories that are brought in. So I thought that was really cool. I really love the way that those other stories are brought in to really flesh out the members of the midnight club. I love the adult characters as well. Um, they're very interesting. They kind of have a purpose and, um, Find oftentimes that these—I don't want to say adults because, um, you know, the members of the Midnight Club. I want to say they're—I know that uh, Alonka's eighteen when she comes, and I know that there's at least one or two that are that age, if not a little bit older. So you know, older adult uh, characters being utilized extremely well. Because they can kind of get, uh, you know, put on a back burner when you're really focused on a core group of younger folks. So I thought it was a good balance. And all the acting I thought was really, really good. There were a couple members of the club that I thought did a great job. I just wanted more. And really that would have been, you know, Sherry. I feel like we didn't get a ton at all with her. Um, Maybe a little bit more Amesh and Nasuki. Just because I feel like they kind of had their own storylines going on. Um, And it, I don't know, sometimes it felt a little uh, desperate. So I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of them a little more incorporated into the group here and there um but yeah overall I think it's great I think Flanagan again has knocked it out of the park bums me out that I don't think he got a lot of viewership so I'm not extremely hopeful it's gonna get that season two. but I'm holding out hope that it will um you know since Flanagan already has another series in the works that's going to be coming out I think next year and you know I, I, I just don't know if this is something that Netflix would necessarily be sweating you know as opposed to hey I'm concentrating on one series at a time and this is the one that I want to continue Um, I do like the fact that although he was the producer and I guess kind of showrunner, he did bring on other directors. So Flanagan only directed the first couple of episodes. Um, He brought in, I think, some actual like good, uh, kind of good and well-known directors, especially in terms of kind of like horror TV. Uh, I'm thinking specifically, I know that actual Carolyn did i think an episode or two and she's done um some stuff with american horror story so and i really am a big fan of her work i think her most recent film um that came out was the manor either last year or the year before and i think that's on uh amazon prime but she's been around for a hot minute and if you've watched any of the documentaries uh, the horror documentaries on Shudder, she pops up. She's really great. She's also a great Twitter follow. I, She was a Twitter follow of mine back when I was on the socials. So, yeah. Um, overall, I think it's a great series. I hope that doing this kind of uh, deep dive is interesting and not completely boring for y'all. I just thought it was a cool... A cool little thing. Um, I felt like it resonated on a lot of disability themes that I wasn't necessarily anticipating from this story. Which is why I was really excited to talk about it. But also kind of why I I waited Because I wanted to make sure I was able to kind of go through the series and be like, Do I think that I have enough to say on this? And I feel like I did. So, yeah. That's this episode. And again, thank you all for kind of sticking sticking for a long one. Uh, as always, it means the world to me. I have to give that shout out to Anatomy of the Scream for being the home and the heart of Bodies of Horror per use. Um, I just feel honored. Each and every time I sit down to record, I'm like, I get to do this and I get to... To have this up there with with other folks that I really respect that are talking about some cool stuff too. So that means a lot as well. And if you haven't already checked out the other shows on the Anatomy of Ace Cream feed, please do. Um, I know I say that every episode, but I can't stress it enough. You're going to get lots of good stuff. Um, White Ladies in Crisis good for her the standards you know them, you love them you can sing them in your sleep you should buy now so um you know check those out if you haven't already um absolutely incredible and there's always new stuff kind of coming down the pike pike pun uh i guess intended i don't know i'm going a little bit delirious here but um Thank you again for, for being here and until next time. The anatomy of scream pod squad.